announcements. Welcome, everyone. Super pumped that you are here this morning. We are in chapter five. Chapter five this morning titled, oh, that was chapter six. Chapter five titled The Dedication. The Dedication. And we are in a chapter that's based, yesterday we were in a chapter that was based on the first 20 verses of Luke chapter two. And today it's drawn from basically Luke 2, 21 to 38. I think that's right. 21 to 38. And so there's our chapter Right, there we go. Today we're in the dedication. And I, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to do this through the whole time, but I did the thing again where I tried to come up with a single word that I thought encapsulated the whole, the essence of what the chapter was about, in addition to the rubric that we do at the end of all of the sessions. And I, it, it worked again. I have no idea if this is going to work through the whole of the 87 chapters, but we're five chapters deep, and I came up with one today that I'm pretty pumped about. Um, And I think, for me at least, from my perspective, devotional perspective, it really captures what is going on in chapter five, the dedication. So a quick prayer, and we're off to the races. Father in heaven, so great to see hundreds of people already signing in on both Facebook and Instagram And Father, we are thrilled to be at the feet of Jesus in the mornings. Lord, I'm loving the rhythm of this. I think you've made us to enjoy rhythm, to enjoy routine, things that we do with regularity, Father. I I just feel alive when I'm doing things that I do consistently. And Father, I'm enjoying this. I get the strong sense that others are enjoying it and being blessed by it and judging by the emails and the responses and the comments. Lord, we just want to give you all of the praise, all of the, all of the honor for the fact that, that Jesus is the star of the show here. Jesus is the hero. He's the one. He's the true interpreter, the redeemer of the world. And we are thrilled to come and learn more about the desire of all nations, the desire of all ages, who we'll be learning about more today. And so, Father, this is an important scene. This is that scene there in Luke 2 where Jesus, as, a, as an infant, as an eight-day-old baby, is brought into the temple to be dedicated in accordance with the Mosaic law. And Father, there's a lot going on here. There are layers upon layers of meaning, and I pray that we'll be able to tap into some of that and not just tap into it intellectually, but that we'll be able to come away with some really practical applications for our lives. Um, Father, we devote this time to you because you have devoted yourself and you have devoted the sacrifice of Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus to us. So Father, anything that we could offer in response is so small, so incomparably minuscule. But Father, we offer it nonetheless, and we offer it out of love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, good morning, everyone. Um, Here we go. We are in chapter five, the dedication. Now, a a few things that I want to say at the outset here. For me, this was a a little different chapter uh, than some of the other chapters that we've read up to this point. Because I I found it to be, not that there haven't been elements of poetry in some of the chapters prior to this, but I found this to be an extremely poetic chapter. Um, Did anybody else sort of feel that? There's a lot of these really poetic allusions and a lot of this sort of this and this. And I'll read you several of my favorite um, poetic expressions in this chapter. But that's the thing that really jumped out at me. I was like, man, this is very poetic, very beautiful, which makes sense, right? Because the Old Testament prophets largely wrote, not entirely, but largely wrote in verse or in poem. 
uh, poetry. We often read it as it's as if it's prose, but it's not. It's a poetry. It's poem. There's symbolism. There's allusion. Um, there is purposeful ambiguity. And sometimes we read it like we're reading the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or something, like it's just a news report. No, the prophets were artists. And God himself, of course, is an artist. And so it's unsurprising that he would express himself in an artful and and in a way that allows different people with different perspectives, different backgrounds, different contexts, different cultures to come and still see so much in it for themselves, right? That's, that's one of the reasons that scripture has stood the test of time because it is so poetically, artistically, and aesthetically pleasing, right? It's not an essay. It's not just a series of, you know, axiomatic truths about the nature of the universe and of reality. I know some people want to turn the Bible into that. They want to turn it into like a textbook, into a rule book, into a code book. But the Bible's a story book, right? In fact, the journal that I'm using for my notes actually says here, storyteller on it. Can you see that? Storyteller. And this this is a journal that we give out when we do the Arise Intensives. We encourage everyone to become a storyteller. And so the Bible's written in this narrative form. And because of that, we have these great stories and these beautiful allusions and poems. And so what struck me today right at the outset was, very, very poetic, this chapter. Um, as I mentioned yesterday, we're going to pay particular attention to that opening paragraph and that closing paragraph. Today, uh, the chapter was a little longer. I think it was like seven pages or seven and a half pages. Still short, easy to read. I read through it twice. Um, I like to go through it the first time to get a feel for the general shape of it. And then I like to go through and get sort of stuck in the weeds, so to speak. Okay. Um, so here we go. First chapter is going to introduce to us what's happening. As I already mentioned, this is from Luke 2, beginning in verse 21, down through 38. And this is where Mary and Joseph, uh, in the days immediately after, you know, within a few weeks, 40 days, I think, after the uh, birth of Jesus and the circumcision of Jesus on the eighth day, Jesus, <clears throat> and again, <clears throat> you can see why this would lend itself to so much poetic illusion and beauty, because and we're, we're going to get to this. God himself, in the person of a little helpless infant, a babe, is being brought into the temple by his poor parents, uh, earthly parents, who themselves don't really understand the I mean, let's be honest. They don't understand the significance of what's going on. The priest who does the dedication does not understand the significance of what's going on. No one really understands the significance of what's going on, except for God. The angels don't. The onlooking angels are like, where's this going to go? I mean, they know in one sense that's the incarnate Christ, but no one knows how this movie ends, right? Which is why it's so important that the two prophetic voices in the temple on this day, Simeon and then he's followed by Anna, they show up, say, hey, hey, everybody, just so you're clear, Something really special is happening here. Something really awesome is happening here. And so there is this there is this sense, and Ellen White makes this very clear in the chapter, that an absolutely phenomenal, incredible, incomprehensible, unimaginable thing is happening, but people are just going about as if nothing is happening. And we're going to get right to that in the rubric. Okay, so let's do this. Chapter 1, paragraph 1. After about 40 days... 
About 40 days after the birth of Christ, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him before the Lord and to offer sacrifice. This was according to the Jewish law, and as man's substitute, Christ must conform to the law in every particular. He had already been subjected to the rite of circumcision as a pledge of his obedience to the law. Okay, great. So exactly as we would expect, Jesus is a Jew. We, we've already had a chapter called The Fullness of Time, which is based on Galatians chapter 4. In the when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Right? So made under the Jewish system of, of Torah. So if Jesus is going to come, not only as a human being, which of course he is, but also as a Jewish human being, and as an example to both Jews and Gentiles, which is going to come out in Simeon's prophecy, he has to cooperate with, and his parents have to cooperate with, all of the particulars of the Jewish law, right? By the way, this is the passage from which we, uh, in, the, in the Christian world, get baby dedication from. I don't think there's any biblical case to be made for, for infant baptism, but infant dedication and child dedication, absolutely. The child is brought and presented before God. And often, as I say when I do child dedications, what you're really dedicating is the family, the family is dedicating themselves to the Lord and to the raising of this child. And so Jesus, as a Jewish young man, as a Jewish infant at this point, is brought in to cooperate with all of the particulars of the Mosaic law, the Jewish law. And so he's brought in there. He's already been circumcised. The next paragraph begins, as an offering for the mother, the law required. The law required. And so, again, cooperating with Torah. And by the way, we see that Jesus was very specific as he grows and becomes an adult when he would heal somebody, particularly a leper. I rem I'm remembering one occasion. He said, go to the priests and offer the appropriate offering. Jesus was very specific, and it makes sense why he would be. Even though the Jewish system has been significantly distorted and perverted from its original intent and purpose, Jesus could still see the beauty and the significance of it, and so he did not want to be perceived in any way, shape, or form as diminishing the very law, right? The very Torah, the very truth that he himself had given from Sinai to Moses, right? And so I, when you think about this, there's something very fascinating about it. You already get the sense that there is a kind of set of rules, right? There's like terms of engagement, that God can't just do any old willy-nilly thing that he wants to do. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll fix that by, you know. No, God has to cooperate with reality as it is. And we sometimes have this idea that God can just do what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. Not really. Not if he's also going to accommodate the reality that the universe is populated by other agents, free agents like us. In fact, I wrote a book about this that I talked about the other day called God in Pain, and my next book, well, it'll either be my next book or the book after that that I'm writing, is going to be about this very thing. And rather than being called God in pain, it's going to be called God in power. Because a great many people misunderstand what it means that God is omnipotent or that God possesses all power. So the very fact that God has to, in some sense, abide by the terms of the covenant and the laws and the strictures and the requirements that he had established gives us an insight into what Dr. John Peckham calls in his book, the covenantal rules of engagement. And I really like that. God is 
participating with us, not just in the cosmic sense, but of course, Jesus is becoming a man. And there is no greater condescension than that. And so God is coming down to participate and to cooperate um, with us in this thing. And so if a Jewish infant had to be dedicated, Jesus is going to be dedicated. If a Jewish infant had to be circumcised, Jesus is going to be circumcised. So I love that. I love the fact that God does not say, you know, what's good for you is not good for me. Right? That kind of a God who would condescend in the incarnation to become one of us will not say, yeah, 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 but I'm God and I'm not, I'm not going to do all that. No, he's going to literally, insofar as it's possible, we talked about this yesterday, become fully human. Incredible. Okay, so he's offered here. Then on the second page, I'm on page 51 in the types and symbols. That's actually 51 in the original pagination as well. Sometimes they line up like that. Uh, Ellen White goes through the sort of biblical historical context of what it means that Jesus is the firstborn. The firstborn. And this is actually a little more complicated and nuanced and even more beautiful than you might expect at first uh, glimpse. You might think, oh, the firstborn is the one that's born first, right? That sort of stands to reason. And that is very often the case, but it's also the case that the firstborn is the, the, the first in terms not of chronology, but of primacy, okay? The, like, like you have the first lady, right? The first lady of the, of, the, of the United States is the wife of the president. She wasn't, she's not the first in terms of chronology. She's the first in terms of primacy. And so Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he's the most important human being that's ever been born. And, and Ellen White goes through and talks about the, 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 the firstborn here with regards to the Passover and how the birth of the Jewish nation came to be when God had said to Pharaoh, let my son go, my firstborn, right? I'm right here in the middle of that page. And she quotes Exodus chapter four, verses 22 and 23. Now, one of the things that we're gonna see in today's chapter is there are two gigantic theological themes that Ellen White just hits head on. I want to say that again. In today's chapter, we're going to encounter two gigantic theological themes that Ellen White just hits head on. And one of them is the sonship of Christ. Christ as the firstborn. Christ as the son of God. I said yesterday that Jesus becomes Israel. Okay, and some people, I mentioned the sermon, who is real is real. There are an astonishing number of followers of Jesus who do not understand what it means that Jesus is the son of God. And happily for you and happily for me, my good friend Ty Gibson has written a book about this very thing. Okay. Now, I don't know if you own this book or not, um, but you need to own this book. And you know, it's not a very big book. It's like 200 and something pages. If you have not read this book, please, please buy this book and read it because it's about the very thing that I'm discussing right now as the title gives away, The Sonship of Christ, exploring the covenant identity of God and man. You need to own this book. And so I reached out to Ty this morning, and the author, my good friend Ty Gibson, who many of you know, I said, Ty, yo, I got an idea. Can we, as we did with the audiobook Desire of Ages from Paris Publishing and the Conflict Beautiful set, can we offer a discount on this book in case somebody wants to buy it themselves for the first time, or maybe they have a person they'd like to buy it for. And Ty is epic. He's like, of course, let's do it. And so 
For the next 10 days, you can go to the Lightbearers website. I'll put the link in the bio. I'll also put the link in the Facebook. For the next 10 days only, the Sonship of Christ can be purchased. It's normally $14.99, so it's normally 15 bucks. It's now 10 bucks. Thank you, Ty Gibson. That's just, that's just from Ty. And I asked him to do it. I literally asked him like 45 minutes ago, and he's like, of course. So then we got a hold of our um, web tech guy at Lightbearers, and they've already inputted the discount code. I know it works because I just did it this morning myself. Okay, $10. $10 for the Sonship of Christ. And let me tell you, it's worth 10 times that. Uh, thank you, Ty, for writing this book. I, I cannot say enough good about it. And what Ty does in the book is he, just let me make sure that's very clear. You're going to go to lightbearers.org, or you can even go to the sonshipofchrist.com and just click on buy the book. When the discount code comes up, input DA with DA. It's not case sensitive. It's 10 bucks. And if I could be so bold, Ty didn't ask me to say this, buy five copies, buy four copies, buy three copies, give this book away. This book needs to be given away. In fact, Ty just told me that there are like 60,000 of these books that they have put at a cost of, I mean, like they just like reduced it, reduced it, reduced it as much as they could. They put them in a container and they shipped them to, um, I think, Tanzania. So anyway, thank you, Ty, for writing the book. I got to read a pre-advanced, uh, pre-release copy of it, helped him with some of the ideas and, and as I love to do with Ty. He's going to help me too, by the way, whether he knows it or not. Anyway, get the book, read it. Because in the book, Ty explores what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is an easy one to trip up on, and I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, but only to say that my sons, Landon and Jabel, are my sons in a way that is analogous to the way that Jesus is the Son of God, but not identical. And this is the giant mistake that people that are, for example, of the non-Trinitarian persuasion make. They say, oh, I have a son. He's younger than me. He's chronologically, you know, been around less time than me. Therefore, Jesus is the son of God in some chronological or ontological sense, as if this is a diminishment of his essential divinity. No, no. The sonship of Christ is a reference to his covenant identity. And this is detected right here. I've actually... Um, colored it in, Exodus chapter 4, when, in verses 22 and 23, when Moses speaks to Pharaoh, he says, hey, God told me to tell you to let his son go, Israel, his firstborn. So when Jesus shows up as the son of God, he shows up as Israel, as the firstborn of God. Okay, very important. And uh, Ellen White does a great job in this chapter of unpacking the significance of Christ as the son of God in terms of his firstborn identity, okay? His firstborn identity. And this really is, we've been talking about the descendants of Abraham. The Passover is, of course, the beginning of the Jewish calendar year, right? The Passover begins the Jewish calendar. And the reason for that is, is that the Passover began the Jewish nation, right? Prior to that, the descendants of Abraham were largely regional tribes, uh, that sort of existed, you know, over here you had the, you know, the descendants of Jacob, you have the 12 sons of Jacob, and over here you have these, but, but at Passover, you could say the nation of Israel is born, right? Because the Passover is the, basically the outworking of the 10 plagues that fell and uh, on Egypt, and they go out as a nation, they go to Sinai, they receive the sanctuary, they receive Torah, and so you could say, and it's totally fair to say, that the birth of Israel as a nation happens with Passover. And so unsurprisingly, the Jewish calendar begins with 
Passover, 14th day of the first month, okay? So that whole page, this whole section here, page 51, is her describing what happens with regard to the firstborn. She makes this really great point. Um, I'm reading here at the very bottom of the page. The firstborn were to be regarded as the Lord's and were to be bought back by a ransom. Okay, that's, that's what's happening here in the temple with Jesus. He's being brought into the temple as Joseph and Mary's firstborn, and an offering is being given. He's being ransomed back or, or on loan back from Yahweh because the firstborn, uh, as it says in the Old Testament, all that opened the womb for the first time, the firstborn, those are mine. And so this offering, this special offering, was made for the firstborn. Um, now I'm at the top of page 52, and I'll just read this paragraph because Ellen White just describes what I've sort of done here in a lot of words she does in a single paragraph. Thus the law for the presentation of the firstborn was made particularly significant. While it was a memorial of the Lord's wonderful deliverance of the children of Israel, Passover, it prefigured a greater deliverance to be wrought out by the only begotten Son of God, as the blood sprinkled on the doorposts had saved the firstborn in Israel, so the blood of Christ has the power to save the world. You, right? And so you have this, as we talked about already, that these sacrifices, these symbols, these rites, these rituals had no efficacy in and of themselves. They had no strength in and of themselves. They anticipated, they pointed forward to something. And so this is absolutely amazing. The next section then goes into the thing that I was talking about earlier, how this incredible thing is happening, this unimaginable, incomprehensible thing is happening, but it's not understood. It's not discerned. It's not discerned by anybody. Mary and Joseph themselves don't understand what's going on here. They know there's something special. I mean, Joseph definitely knows there's something special, right? Because he's saying, um, yeah, I don't know how Mary became pregnant, and I don't know how we have this baby but she's a chaste woman in whom I have the utmost confidence, and I know it wasn't me, right? So, so Joseph knows something supernatural is going on here. Mary certainly knows that something supernatural has gone on here. But in terms of understanding the larger identity and mission of Messiah, no. Nobody gets it. Nobody knows. And, and Ellen White communicates that sort of lack of awareness about what's actually happening here, the profundity of what's happening in the temple, when the very one who ordained the temple, who created the temple, who conceived of the temple, who inhabited the temple, has now come to the temple and no one understands what's going on. Not Mary, not Joseph, and not the priests. And so Ellen White uses this phrase two times, day after day. And she uses this as a literary device to communicate the routine nature of, you know, as we've talked about actors in a play, going through the rhythms, going through the sort of, you know, um, the, the, the rhythms and routines of being a priest. And so she says, day after day, the priest received the redemption money as babes were presented to the Lord. Day after day, he went through the routine of his work, giving little heed to the parents of the children, right? So, so he's just doing what he's doing, right? He's going through the sort of rhythms of the Jewish economy and has no idea what's happening in front of him. And, and then here we get into the poetic stuff. Here's where Ellen White starts to, she's not going to let an opportunity pass here, to grab onto the incredible, incomprehensible profundity and sublimity of what's happening. She's not going to let that pass. And so she begins to write at some of her poetic best here. I'll just read to you now. I'm at the bottom of page 52. He, speaking of the priest, 
she uses several of these. I'll, I'll read to you a few of my favorites. He did not think that this babe was he whose glory Moses had asked to see. Woo! Don't you love that? Right? Like, no one knows what's going on. The priest has no idea that the little babe that he's holding in his hand, that he's lifting up and presenting before Yahweh, is Yahweh. He's the one that, that Moses had said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Right? And so she says that here. Next one she gives, another one of these little poetic allusions. She says, um, he did not know that he was enrolling the name of the one, capital O, who was the foundation of the whole Jewish economy. Again, incredible. We're going to come back to this in our rubric. Um, Then this, whoa, this popped to me. This popped big time. Listen to this, very next sentence. That name, Jesus, the name Jesus, that name was to be its death warrant. For the system of sacrifices and offerings was waxing old. The type had almost reached its anti-type, the shadow, its substance. Whoa, whoa. When, this is what she's saying. She's saying, when, when the, the, the priest wrote down on the certificate of, of dedication for the firstborn, Jesus of Nazareth, what he was doing was signing the death warrant of the whole sacrificial system. That, that name was to be its death warrant. And that reminded me right here at the bottom of the page, I wrote, I put a little asterisk, I often do this, I put a little asterisk here and put page 41 because that reminded me of something I'd already read. Let me read it to you because I read it the other day. Here it is, page 41. You ready for this? You ready for this? Um, Starting on page 40. In presenting the sacrificial offerings, they were as actors in a play. We've mentioned that several times. The ordinances which God himself had appointed were to made the means of blinding the mind and hardening the heart. Remember, the light that was in them had become darkness. Now listen to this. God could do no more for man through these channels. The whole system must be swept away. Death warrant. And there it is. I did the same thing here. I wrote, so here I wrote page 52. So on page 52, I wrote page 41. And on page 41, I write page 52. So I remember, I just thought, man, that's, fascinating. The priest has no idea. He's just going through the day-by-day routines. He sits out. Oh, what's the name of the child, ma'am? Excuse me, ma'am. What's the name of the... Okay. Yeshua, Jesus. Okay, thank you. Goes to write it down. She says he was writing the death warrant of the whole sacrificial system because the shadow had met the substance. Right? Right? All of those lambs, all of those bullocks, all of those turtle doves, all of the ceremonies, the rites, the rituals, the, the building itself anticipated the arrival of Messiah. And I'm getting to a very cool point here in just a second. And when he writes Jesus of Nazareth, he's signing the death warrant of the whole system. It's going to be swept away. Now, let me tell you something. A, a really cool idea, and I'm going to recommend this to you, is one of the things that I do in my devotions. Every morning, I pray that God will give me at least one gem. I don't just do this now. This is a thing I do. When I have my devotions, no matter what I'm reading, if I'm reading through the Psalms or I'm reading through a gospel, I'm reading through, you know, Desire of Ages, I say, God, give me, give me at least one gem. If you want to give me 10, I'll take 10. I'll take 10 gems. But, but give me at least one gem every day. Something that at the end of the day, when I'm going to sleep, this is a very good little spiritual exercise, by the way. 
When you go to sleep, rather than having your last thought be about all the things that you've got to do the next day, try to make one of your last thoughts, what was my devotional gem? It's very cool. Try to find a thing that you can lay hold on that you will remember throughout the course of the day and even the next day, okay? So I pray for a gem. And so this morning, God gave me a great big gem. I mean, a gem about this big. And I'm, I'm about ready to share it with you. Top of page 53. Uh, the Shekinah had departed from the sanctuary, the Shekinah glory, which inhabited the most holy place. Um, that hasn't been there, by the way, since Jeremiah hid the temple in anticipation of the Babylonian uh, captivity and destruction of the temple. So that's a whole nother thing that we don't have time. Well, we'll get into that actually when we get into when the veil of the temple is torn. Yeah, that's that's heavy. So look at this. The babe was the promised seed to whom the first altar at the gate of Eden pointed. There's another one. So the babe is the one that Moses said, can I see your glory? The babe is the one that was the foundation of the whole Jewish economy. The babe was the promised seed to whom the first altar at the gate of Eden pointed. And then she does this, it was he, it was he, this was he. I'll read it to you. It was he who had declared himself to Moses as the I am. It was he who in the pillar of cloud and of fire had been the guide of Israel. This was he whom the seers had long foretold. He was the desire of all nations, the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Okay, now, we're coming right up against. It was he who was the hope of fallen humanity. It was he who was to pay the ransom for the sins of the world. It was he, the true high priest over the house of God, the head of the unchangeable priesthood, the intercessor at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it was he, it was he, it was he, it was he. This incredible, incomprehensible, miraculous thing, this singularity, because this will never happen again, right? Jesus is never going to become a man again as a baby and be offered in a temple. This is, this is a one-off in the history of the universe. And, you know, people are just sort of going about humdrum, their day-to-day routines. Again, Joseph and Mary's hearts would have been deeply moved. This is their child in the same way that any parent is deeply moved at the dedication of their child. And they knew there was something supernatural. But they only comprehend a fraction of a fraction of what's actually happening here. And the priests understand none of it. They got none of it, which is why it's going to be so crucial that Anna, Simeon, and Anna show up. But, but, but before we get there, yeah, the unconscious babe, exactly, Sylvia. I saw that too. I'm so glad you saw that. The unconscious babe, whoa, just a moment on that. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Sylvia. She says the unconscious babe. So he's sleeping, you know, he's, a, he's like a few weeks old infant. They don't know what's going on, really. Well, let your mind settle on that. The infinite, illimitable omniscient, eternal God of the universe is at some level in his humanity unaware himself. He's the unconscious babe, right? Like the father is certainly looking on and knowing what's going on, but this, and this will become important for us. This is a big idea that I wasn't planning on touching on, but, but Jesus was truly a human, right? He didn't like have this reservoir of, you know, infinite, eternal, divine knowledge that he could just tap into and be like, yo, this is what's actually happening. No, no, no. Jesus is going through this experience like you and I go through it. And you're like, well, how does that work? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. How does that work? Thank you for pointing that out, Sylvia. I, that jumped at me too. That really popped at me. Okay. Now we're right up against the gem here. When she says, this was he whom the seers had long foretold. The word seer is an old fashioned word for prophet. The, literally the seer. 
whom the prophets had foretold. He was the desire of all nations. Okay, the desire of all nations from which the title of the book comes, right? The desire of ages, right? It's a play on the desire of all nations, the desire of all ages. So that is found in the the Old Testament prophet, the minor prophet, Haggai. It says Zechariah there, but this side is Haggai, okay? So Haggai's two short chapters, and I'm going to read this to you, okay? This is the gem that Jesus gave me, and it's pretty awesome. Okay, are we back? Are we back? I just got a phone call there. Uh, I, I thought I put this on. Okay, we're back. Um, my good friend, uh, who's actually the one that's responsible for me being a follower of Jesus, Josh Marco, was just trying to call me in the middle of my live, so I'll call him back later. Okay, check it out. Here we go. Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7. Okay, watch this. I'll pick it up in verse 6. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, once more it is a little while, and I will shake the heaven and the earth, the sea and the dry land. That's verse 6. Here's our verse. 7. And I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, you, uh, there's a lot going on here, but you have to understand that we talked briefly about Second Temple Judaism, right? So the original Solomonic Temple had been built, uh, and it was one of the wonders of the world, right? This is Solomon's beautiful prayer is in what, First Kings 8, I think? And the temple, remember David had wanted to build the temple, but he was a man of blood. And so God said, you can't build it, but you can collect the materials. And so, so, so Solomon builds the temple and they have that incredible dedication ceremony. I think it's 1 Kings 8. Solomon prays one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the Bible. Whenever someone turns their face to this, you know, building, may you, and, and, and God comes down in this cloud-like glory into the temple. He so inhabits the Solomonic temple at its dedication that the priests, the, 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 the smoke and the presence of God became so thick that the priests had to leave the temple. It's a very, very cool and hugely symbolic thing, okay? Now, after the temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar because of the captivities that we talked about and the insubordination that we talked about and the insularity that we talked about, the temple about a century later was rebuilt, Okay, and it was rebuilt under the ministry of people like Zechariah and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and others. So when the temple was rebuilt, it was rebuilt much, much smaller and considerably less opulent than the Solomonic temple. In fact, there's a verse, ah, I should have looked this up. I think, oh, I should have looked this up. I think it's in like Ezra 3. I could be wrong about that. I should have looked this verse up, but there's a verse. I think it's Ezra 3. Man, that's going to drive me crazy. Okay, let me just look it up real quick. Just just forgive me for this, but you have to see this. Um, I'm just Googling here because I'm a temple wept. Uh, let me see if that'll give it to me. Oh, it, oh, Ezra 3. Look at that. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. I'm reading it now. Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to this. Uh, okay, here we go. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while others shouted for joy. Okay, this is pretty epic. The, the, when the second temple... Okay, so the, 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 the Jews were in Babylonian captivity. That then gave way to 
the, the Persian, brief Persian, and then they were released, right, by Xerxes. So, so when they go back to rebuild their city and their temple, um, the Jews lay the foundation for the temple. And some of the old timers, that's what it says here, some of the older priests and the Levites who remembered in their childhood, I suppose, or maybe tales that had been told them about the size and the scope and the grandeur and the glory and the beauty of the first temple, when they saw the size, the, the comparably smaller size, much smaller size of the new foundation, it says, who had seen the former temple wept aloud. They're like, no, no, it's so small. It's such a diminishment of what it had been. The glory is less than it had been. In the great days of the Davidic kingdom and the Solomonic kingdom, this is such a letdown. Oh, you know where this is going, right? You know where this is going. In fact, we've already gone there. We're there. By the way, it's Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. So we're back in Haggai. We're back in Haggai right here. I'll read it again. I will shake, I'm in verse 7. Chapter two, I will shake all the nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts, just like he did in the Solomonic dedication. He filled the temple with glory. So God's giving a promise here. I'm gonna fill this temple in anticipation of the completion of the second temple. I'm gonna fill it with glory. Here's the gem. Verse eight, the silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts, right? A reference to the opulence of the temple. Verse nine. Verse nine, the glory of this latter temple will be greater than the former, says Yahweh. In this place, I will give peace, Shiloh. I will give peace, says Yahweh. What? Anybody who had seen, the people of Ezra chapter three, verse 12, if you had gone to them and said, hey, don't, don't, don't wail, don't cry, no, no, the glory of the, of the second temple will be greater than the glory of the first temple. And they could say, what? Well, you, look at you, young whippersnapper. You have no idea. You never saw the size, the scale, the scope, the opulence, the grandeur of the first temple. You don't know what you're talking about. But from God's perspective, the smaller, uh, diminutive second temple, he says, the glory will be greater. Why? Because of the very thing that we're reading about right now, Jesus, again, through all of those little poems that, that she gives, um, the one whose glory Moses had asked to see, the foundation of the whole Jewish economy, the one whose name was the death warrant of the whole system, um, the one to whom the first altar in the gate of Eden pointed, it was he, it was he, the desire of all nations, the hope of humanity, because God in human flesh comes into that temple and no one is aware of it. Jesus, a large part of Jesus' ministry is going to be built around his controversial and conflicted relationship to the temple. I'll say that again. A lot of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, a lot of the narrative in the Gospels is built around Jesus' controversial and conflicted ministry with the temple you get the sense that he's simultaneously drawn to it for what it was originally designed to be, but he's repulsed by it, by what it's become, right? And, the, and of course, the great example of this is when he goes in, throws out all the, the money changers and says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Jesus could see that the beauty was still there. The, the, if, if, if through his eyes, he could see what, what was supposed to have been 
and then the perversion that it had become. And so you have this give and take with Jesus with regards to the temple. And then, of course, the final act of that is when the veil of the temple at Jesus' death is torn from the top to the bottom. So, so you have, because Jesus himself is the temple, right? He's the embodiment of the temple. He's the personification of the temple. So you have this like kind of weird world in which two temples were existing, right? The actual literal second temple. And then Jesus, who was the one to whom the temple had pointed in all of its symbols and all of its signs and all of its types. And there's this weird sort of cosmic, like, you know how when you have two magnets and sometimes the magnets, if you orient them one way, they can go right together. But if you orient them another way, they're repulsed, right? They, they push away. So Jesus has this, you know, magnetic relation to the temple where on, in certain ways he's drawn to it for what it was originally supposed to be. And in other ways, he's repulsed by it. And you get the sense that he's trying to restore it insofar as it was possible to what it was, but man, that was the gem. I actually wrote it right here. I wrote it right here. Wow. Haggai chapter two, verse nine. Listen to it. The priest looked upon the child as he would upon any other child, but though he neither saw nor felt anything unusual, God's act in giving his son to the world was acknowledged. Enter Simeon. So, so I thought about this. If you had gone to the priest that day, if you'd gone to the priest that day and said, hey, um, just so you know, Haggai chapter two, verse nine is being fulfilled right now, right in this very moment. The priest would have looked around, confused, bewildered and said, what, sir? What? What's being fulfilled? Okay, you know, Haggai chapter two, verse nine, where it says that the glory of the latter temple will exceed the glory of the former. That's happening right now. And he would have been like, I'm sorry, you need to go learn from the scribes what this verse means. Like, he had no idea. He was completely oblivious. Everybody was. Which is why it's so crucial that Simeon comes in, and then later Anna, and Simeon gives this, gives this prophecy over Jesus. And then Anna confirms the prophecy. Okay, um, I'm at the top of page 54. Um, as Simeon takes, I mean, this must have been awkward, right? A little socially awkward, like get the picture in your sanctified imagination. Uh, <laughs> some random guy, you know, whose like face is lighted up and who's in some sort of rapturous, you know, trance of joy, like walks up, you know, pushes the priest out of the way, takes the baby. Everybody's like, awkward, you know, like it's just a, this is a moment. And then the, the, the Simeon, lifts the child up. And again, he doesn't fully understand what's going on, but God gives him a prophecy. God gives him a vision. And here's the prophecy. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That's actually not the whole... um, she just quotes it there. Let me get it. Um, yeah, no, that is it. Then it continues. I'm reading now from Luke chapter two, verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things that were spoken of him. They're like, whoa, because he was enraptured with joy. Like the prophetic utterance was upon him and they sensed that this was a holy moment, even though they, again, they don't understand the scope of it. Verse 34, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, look, This child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul 
that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And then he, he gives the child back to Mary. Mary understands, as does Joseph, something significant has just happened, but she does not comprehend the meaning of it, right? He's a sign for the rising and the fall of many in Israel. A sword will pierce your own heart. You know, God has permitted me to see the salvation, the light that will bring uh, salvation to not only the Gentiles, but also the Jews. By the way, that's a great point. That That's a fulfillment, again, of the Abrahamic promise that I will bless you and you will be a blessing. God's plan was never parochial. It was never regional. It was always global and inclusive. Now, for me, for me, for me, for me, the moment that that Ellen White quotes Simeon here, the whole chapter takes another turn. She goes from that sort of background about the firstborn and the poetic, you know, um, references to Jesus' incarnation. And then as soon as she says the word sign, the whole chapter pivots, okay? It's right here in the middle of page 54, and I have highlighted that here. She quotes it. Behold, the child is destined for the rising and fall of many in Israel and for a sign. And as you might have guessed, that's my word for this chapter. A sign. A sign. When he says the child is a sign, it's the very thing that the angels had said, remember, to the shepherds. Go to Bethlehem and you will see a sign, a baby, a little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in a feeding trough. Jesus himself is a sign, and not only had the angel said it to the shepherds, Simeon adds a detail here that's fascinating. He's not just a sign. He is, he is destined for the rising and falling of many in Israel. So he is a sign that will bring about ultimate judgment. There's a sense of finality here. And um, then Anna comes in, confirms the prophecy, uh, let me hasten along here a little bit. Um, I'm reading now from the middle of page 54. Anna also, uh, no, next page, or next paragraph. These humble worshipers had not studied the prophecy, speaking of Anna and Simeon. These humble worshipers had not studied the prophecies in vain, but those who held the positions as rulers and priests in Israel, though they had, though they too had before them the precious utterances of prophecy were not walking in the way of the Lord and their eyes were not open to behold the light of life. This is a not so subtle nod to what the gospels are going to reveal, which is that the priests and the religious leaders and the scribes did not get what was going on and the common people did. The fishermen did, the publicans did, the sinners did. This is a nod to where that's going. And then Ellen White has this great line here. The very next line she says, look at this. So it is still. So it is still. Wow. Whoa. Just like that today, that the humble, those that come and present themselves before God with humility, um, they know what's really going on. I like that. The priests missed it. The, you know, the, this whole incredible thing has just happened in the temple. Mary and Joseph walk out like, wow, that was fascinating. What do you think it meant? It, a sword will pierce my heart and a sign for the rise and fall of many. You know, they were... It says that Mary, she hid these things in her heart. You know, she was, she was not fully grasping it. Then, page 55, Ellen White goes into um, a number of uh, really beautiful prophecies from Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 9, of course, the best known of which is, for unto us a child is born, Isaiah 9, 6. A son is given, okay? The government will be upon his shoulder. There's a lot, a lot there. Um, then the paragraph right after that, uh, it says, 
It was, Simeon had prophesied of him that he would be a light to the Gentiles as well as a glory to Israel. Thus the angels had announced the Savior's birth as tidings of joy to all people. God was seeking to correct the narrow Jewish conception of the Messiah's work. He desired men to behold him, not merely as the deliverer of Israel, but as the redeemer of the world. And now we're on the last two pages. Okay? So I said there's two major themes here, and I'm going to quickly hasten through the second one. The first theme is the sonship of Christ and the nature of that sonship. The second big theme here is the nature of judgment, and I'm going to be extremely brief on this. The nature of judgment. Ellen White is absolutely set off. Again, she quotes it here again. I'm on the next page, and she quotes Simeon again as saying the sign. And look at all this marking that I've done here. I mean, like, she's alluding to Matthew chapter 21, where it says... You know, if you fall on the rock, you'll be broken. But if the rock falls on you, it will grind you to powder, which is, of course, a reference to Daniel chapter 2. Um, then I wrote here, wow, she drops in the great controversy theme, which GC is my great controversy theme. Um, Luke uh, 2.14 here. What was Luke 2.14? That the thoughts are peace and not of evil. Oh, uh, good. This is when the angels said goodwill and peace toward men. Right, and so so all of this incredible thing is happening on this chapter I'm, or on this page. I'm just kind of skipping over that. Not that it's not important, but I do want to get to this line down at the bottom of page 56. It says that God would use all of these gifts to convince mankind that there is no greater love in all of heaven or earth. And I love that, not to coerce, but to convince. That's hot, right? God's not in the business of coercing. He's in the business of convincing, right? She says it to convince mankind. And then what exactly is God trying to convince mankind of? Look, I put it right here. Try to convince human beings that his greatest happiness right here will be found in loving me. God is trying to convince mankind Look, look, your greatest happiness, your greatest joy, that's what we talked about yesterday, is found in loving me because I made you and I know how to make you happy. He's the desire of all nations. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who better, I've said this before in my preaching, but I'll say it again. Who better to fulfill the desires of the heart of mankind than him who made the heart to desire? Right? Who better to fulfill the desires of mankind than him who made the heart to desire. God's trying to convince us that our greatest happiness is found in loving him. And then she goes to the cross, the very next sentence, the, at the cross of Calvary, love and selfishness stood face to place. Here was their crowning manifestation. Next paragraph, by the life and death of Christ, the thoughts of men are brought to view. From the manger to the cross, the life of Jesus was a call to self-surrender and to fellowship and suffering. It unveiled the purposes of men. Jesus came with the truth of heaven and all who were listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit were drawn to him. There it is. There it is. Were drawn to him. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. And what she says next is too big. I'm tell, I, I've, I've, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm just going to go about an hour. I'm done. But I got to say this. We'll do the rubric and we're done. Let me read the next sentence, next two sentences. Uh, that the Holy were drawn to him. The worshipers of self belong to Satan's kingdom. In their attitude toward Christ, everyone would show on which side, on which side they stood. And then this, everyone 
passes judgment on themselves with regards to how they relate to the Messiah and his cross. That's what she says. Everyone passes judgment on themselves. And what I wrote right here is, whoa, this is a big idea. This is a big idea. And then she goes on to actually kind of unpack that, that people will see. And she's talking about in the final judgment. See, the nature of the judgment she's saying here is not that God is doing something to people in the judgment, but that God is showing them something and they then are standing in judgment on themselves for their own selfish decisions when seen in the light of the incarnation and death of Jesus Christ. And, and you think, well, how did we end up there? How did we end up there? We ended up there because of that, that word, a sign for the rising and falling of many. Jesus becomes, what's that word? Um... Not a, somebody might remember the word, and I don't know why I can't remember this, but, but when you have the headwaters of a stream, okay, the headwaters of a stream, and when the headwaters of the stream begin, and there is an incredible headwater to this effect somewhere in, in southern Canada, or it's maybe Minnesota or something, but anyway, when, when, when water flows down and it hits a stream and it flows either to the right or to the left, there's a word for that. Does anybody know what that word, how come I can't remember this? Oh, a watershed, watershed, a watershed moment. Thank you, Sylvia. You remembered it just at the same time I did. A watershed. So the idea here is that water's flowing down. It hits a large stone and it goes one of two directions, right or the left. It can go, if it goes to the right, it goes down that valley, that ravine, and it goes out a totally different location potentially. And if it goes to the left, it goes down this ravine, a watershed moment. Jesus is humanity's watershed. Everybody will flow to Messiah, and depending on how they strike Messiah, how they encounter Messiah, just like the water strikes the rock and goes to the right or the left, we will either, we will be set for the rise, it will be your destiny to spend eternity with the Most High, in joy, right? And having the desires of your heart satisfied and all of the great beauty that the new heaven and the new earth hold in store for the redeemed, or set for the fall of many. This was the prophecy of Simeon. This child is a sign for the rise and fall of many in Israel and of the world. The nature of the judgment is not that God is doing something to us, but he is acknowledging and allowing something that we have done to ourselves. Right? That's not, I'm not, I'm not just making that up. Oh, I got my book upside down here. I'll read it to you again. Here it is. Thus, everyone passes judgment on himself in the context of how we relate to Messiah crucified. Everyone passes judgment on themselves. When Simeon came in there, the priest doesn't understand it. Joseph doesn't understand it. Mary doesn't understand it. Jesus, the unconscious babe, doesn't understand it. He's still a little child. Doesn't understand the, English, the, the Hebrew language yet or the Greek language, whatever was being spoken, well, probably Aramaic. No one understands what's happening in that temple. And Simeon comes in with prophetic, poetic utterance and says, this child is a sign. Lord, let your servant depart in peace. This sign, this, this child, what does he say there? Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples to bring the light of revelation, which is what the cross of Calvary does. It reveals the heart of God. It also reveals the heart of Satan which she gets into, which we didn't a lot here. 
revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel, then he hands the child to Mary and looks her in the eye and says, young lady, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Indeed, a sword will pierce your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Ellen White takes that and here's her theological application. I'll read it. I don't want to misquote it. I do not want to misquote it. Everyone passes judgment on himself with regards to how we move to the right or to the left with regards to the crucified Messiah. A sign. That was my word for today. A sign. Here we go. Here's the rubric. What is the point? Uh, What is the point? Number one, because we go through the point, the person, the prayer and the practice very quickly here. The point is that God became a human, right? That God became a little baby, a little human, and he was brought into the temple. And even he himself as an unconscious babe did not fully discern or understand. He's going to learn about all this at the feet of his parents and certainly at the feet of, of scripture, you know, coming to scripture. But at this point, you know, this is a setup that Jesus was bound by the Mosaic law. He was bound by the rigors of Judaism. He was accommodating himself to circumcision, to the dedication, to every particular of the Jewish economy. So Jesus was a real, actual human being who's going to, in the words of the saying, walk a mile in our moccasins, right? So that's number one. What is the point? Number two, who is the person? Okay, here's what I wrote. I hope you like this. Um... Oh, I'm so funny. Wrong page. Oh, I was reading from yesterday. That's not my point for today. Ah, I gave you the whole wrong point. I'm sorry. I was looking at yesterday's. Embarrassing. I was like, man, this sounds really familiar. I think that was my point yesterday. Here it is. Apologies for that. What is the point for today? By the way, that's still a good point. Oh, of course. What is the point? To help us see things as they actually are. Maybe you're not a prophet, but you can, through the prophets, see the world around you as it actually is. Anna did. Simeon did. To some limited degree, Joseph and Mary did. Nobody else did. So the point here is to help us to see Jesus was a real person, a real human being, a Jewish infant that was brought in to see this for what it is. Who is the person? Well, this was an easy one for me. This is the humble one who wants my greatest happiness and joy and who knows that my greatest happiness is found in loving him. That's the, that's the God we serve, my friends. That's the God revealed in scripture. The God we serve is the God who wants you to be maximally happy. In fact, infinitely happy. And uh, you say, well, how can I be maximally happy? How can I be infinitely happy? God's like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Love me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the pathway to maximal, optimal, and even infinite happiness. So that's the person. Who is the person? The one who wants you to be maximally happy. Um, How should I pray? Okay, here's how I'm going to pray through this chapter. Um, Lord, help me to see things as they actually are. Right? Because incredible things are happening all around us. God, give us biblical insight, prophetic insight, spiritual insight. You tell us in what, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. 
I mean, it's really easy just to, in fact, this is it. Where can I practice this in my life? So we did the point, the person, the prayer. My prayer is, Lord, help me to see things as they actually are, which then gives way to how can I practice this in my life? Obviously, we've got good theology here, sonship theology and the nature of the judgment. Those are two big ideas. But outside of theological application, how about this? How about this? Here's my practical application. Unlike the priest who held unknowingly held Jesus up and and dedicated him and who signed the death warrant of the Jewish system when he wrote down Jesus, who didn't know what was going on. Unlike him, help me not to become passe and routine in my religious observance and in my relationship with God, right? Because it's easy to do that. It's easy to start going through the rhythms and the routine of Sabbath and tithe, and spiritual gifts, and witnessing, and prayer meeting, and devotions, and ministry. Right? No. This is why we have to have these fresh encounters with God every day. So we're reminded, oh yeah, that's right. This is the most incredible thing in all the universe. Oh yeah, this is the thing that I should be building and orbiting my life around. Oh yeah, that's the thing. And man, my heart really goes out to people who are not actually spending time with Jesus in his word and in ministry because religion is kind of religion is kind of wonky without Jesus. It's kind of anyway, I want to say some other words that I'm not going to say. Religion is bad without God. Like it's just a bunch of strictures, it's dry, it's dusty, it's lifeless. I mean, you meet people all the time that are like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, no, I I tried the religion thing. No, it's not it's not for me. I I want my freedom." And you're like, "Yeah, yeah, 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 I get that. But did, did you try the daily Jesus thing? Because that's a whole different thing." Right, the daily Jesus thing is like a whole different thing than religion. And so God, my practical application is help me not to become like that priest where I become blasé and indifferent and apathetic about the most incredible things that have ever been conceived of. No, I want there to be a freshness in my religious experience. And so my prayer is, God, help me to spend time with you every day in ministry, in service, in devotions. And to exercise my mind, not on doom scrolling through Instagram or doom scrolling through Facebook or YouTube, help me to exercise my mind on the things that matter most. Because one day we're going to look back and we're going to regret every second that we wasted. We're going to regret every second that we wasted. We're going to be like, whoa, man, I should have definitely been occupying myself with more important things. Okay, so let's pray. Let's pray. This has been a great session. I hope you've enjoyed this. Our word today was a sign. Oh, I like what you say there, Sylvia. Help me not to be mechanical in my routine, but to be amazed by your works in history and in my daily life. You said it better than I did. Thank you, Sylvia. A a beautiful theologian in her own right, a very intelligent, wonderful person. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, wow, this is a big one. This is a big one. Lord, I suppose the question comes to us, who are we here? Are we the priest who's unaware and unexcited, and unenthusiastic, just going through the routine day by day, mindlessly unaware of the incredible symbolism and significance and profundity of what's happening right in front of them. Lord, don't don't let us be those people. Don't let us be like, oh yeah, 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 Sabbath. Oh yeah, 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 Sabbath school. Oh yeah, yeah, witnessing. Oh yeah, yeah, tithe. Oh yeah, that's right, tithe. Oh yeah, yeah. Lord, help us not to be that. Give us wonder, give us imagination, give us amazement. Give us awe. Man, we use that word awesome so easily and so casually, but Father, you alone are awesome. And may we be struck with awe. May Jesus 
capture our imagination. And Father, may we not forget that Simeon was right. Jesus is a sign. He's the watershed rock that sends us to the right or the left. The cross of Calvary sends us to the right or the left. He's a sign for the rising and falling of many. And Father, as we spend our time over the next 80, what, we got 82 chapters yet to go, Father, may our understanding and our appreciation and our depth of love for Jesus just grow more and more and more and more and more. And Father, may we be, by the power of the Spirit, through the promise of the Spirit, resolutely on the side of those that will rise for the rising and falling, for the rise, those that will rise, taken to new heights of humanity, greater happiness, greater service, greater selflessness. Father, forgive us where we have thought of you and of things related to you and of the Bible. Lord, if I've heard people say, oh, the Bible is boring. Religion is boring. Oh, Lord, wow. What a crime we have committed if we have portrayed to others and to ourselves that the Bible or religion is a boring thing. Father, it is the greatest of things. Help us to turn our attention unreservedly, enthusiastically, and with great awe to you. And may Jesus be a sign for us in the DA with DA challenge. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say amen and amen and amen. All right.